Gig Gab, the Working Musicians Podcast, episode number 43 for Monday, December 14th, 2015. folks and welcome to gig gab here in durham new hampshire i'm dave hamilton mount los gatos california it's paul kent how goes it mr kent good happy holidays dave yeah happy holidays to you yeah absolutely how are things going uh warm here in in new hampshire so it's it's interesting i it it hasn't been cold yet so wait wait Warm, like 20s warm, which would be warm for you at this time of year? Uh, 20s would probably be correct this time of year, uh, but it's like 50s, uh, you know, and uh, on Saturday, I think it might have even hit like high 60s. It's pretty uh-huh. crazy. Yeah, but it hasn't been cold yet. So I, I'm not appreci- I'm not fully appreciating the warmth. You know, it's just like, well, it's, uh, this is what it's always been. We had summer and then it got a little cooler and now here we are, you know, but um, the cold will come and that's fine. That's how it works. It's, gar- it's guaranteed. Pretty much. I mean, yeah, I guess I guess nothing's truly guaranteed. But uh, do you have any gigs this weekend, Paul? I did. Uh, the House Rockers played for the first time in a couple of weeks on Saturday night. We had a club date and uh, talk about the best laid plans uh, being totally balled up and thrown in the garbage. The, the deal was this. We have been working on a little bit of new material. And remember last week we were talking about Christmas songs and where to put them. But the band, it's the holidays. It's hard to get the band together for rehearsal. And the one rehearsal that we had was all to um, audition a new trombone player. So I think I talked about that last week is that, you know, we're going through this process of, of finding a, a new member of our band. Yeah. So that's what we did at that rehearsal. We had a little bit of time to woodshed a new song. And I'm really trying to get us ahead of the game because I really want to turn over a, a huge part of our of our show this year. So uh, the deal was we were going to get to our venue early and work new materials and Christmas songs as part of sound check. So sure enough, we that get ne- to the that club. never works. By the well, way. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the deal. I, I, I think it would have worked. We get to the club and the owner of the club has for neglected to tell us that he booked a private party into the club that was there when we show up. So we're there, you know, there's 50 people there having a private party he had committed that they could use our sound system. So that was another thing. So I, you know, I asked him, can we, it was awfully nice of him. It was very nice of him. Well, actually it worked out really well because, um, uh, well, some of it worked out well. Uh, I asked, can we get a sound check? He said, yeah, about six 30, they're going to do their awards. They're real quick from six Oh five to six 30. And then the stage is yours doors open at seven. So we would have had time to run these two songs once through. So, of course, the award started at 6.05, and they don't end until 7.15. And so we got no sound check. We just got a line check. Um, but the cool, the owner, who's a, a friend now, you know, because we've been doing business with him for quite a while. Sure. He, uh, he's like, you know, I'll, I'll take care of you guys. I'll cover the cover of any of the people from this private party that, that stay here. So that, we kind of nice. hit the ground running from a door standpoint. For that one. So, yeah, and it was fair and, you know, it was a very equitable type of thing. So we go in and we just call these new songs and we play them blind and they really went over pretty darn well. I mean, the, you know, everybody was pretty well. They did, they did their homework. Yeah. And so we were able to kind of pull this one new song. It's um, Back in Time by Huey Lewis. Oh, that's the a great tune. 
Oh, yeah. It's a great tune. Yeah. And we wrote a nice five-piece horn chart for it, so it was really cool. And then, like we talked about last week, I did Santa Claus is Coming to Town as a second-to-last song after we, we had a great night. And um, But like clockwork, Santa Claus is Coming to Town pretty much emptied the dance floor. <laughs> and, just, uh, just like we predicted. Boom. And uh, <clears throat> so we played one more encore and got him back on the dance floor, and, and that was it. So, But it was fun. I mean, the, the band is still, like, even with these long – you know, times in between gigs, we seem to be in a real good groove. The listening is good. The, uh, the playing is real good. The energy level is real good. So That's awesome. absence, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, absence often makes the musicians pay closer attention when they're on stage. For sure. Yeah. But Paul, we're not alone here tonight. Speaking of, no, we are musicians. not. I am really excited. So joining us tonight, is one of my best friends in the world and someone who I play in a band with. So I've been talking about the great acoustic trio that I play with called Acoustic Madness, which is me and then this woman singer that I've told you about, Mary Ellen. And then the third of this group is my good friend, Steve Psychota. So say hi, Steve. Hi, Steve. Yeah, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Steve, um, I asked Steve to come on the show for a number of reasons. So you want to talk about uh, someone who lives, sleeps, works, poops music, Steve would definitely be that person. Since I know him, he's been the leader of one of the better, best probably cover bands in our area, one of the, certainly one of the most popular cover bands in the area. He's been the front man for an award-winning blues band. Um, he works at Digidesign, and he's on the extended Pro Tools team. Um, so, you know, he's involved with that, and, you know, his contacts and his knowledge of music and musicians in the area is really unmatched. And now he's a solo artist. I mean, he plays acoustic music about two and a half years ago. He told me I am on a mission to create a acoustic scene in the South Bay, uh, which he has done. He, he plays solo shows. He has a duo partner. Him and I have done a couple duo shows together. But most of my um, playing with Steve is is in this trio that we do. Steve actually has also subbed in the House Rockers wow. a couple times. So, yeah. So, Steve, amazing musician. He's really well known for legendary status of his repertoire. I mean, it's it's to the point where when we do gigs with Steve, we do stump the band and the, the stumping doesn't happen very often. So <laughs> that's a marvelous awesome. musician. You know, and also I'll say this, you know, I got to say it. I tell him to his face. So this is not news. Steve's one of the most generous musicians I've ever met in my life. I've never met a musician who encourages other musicians to be better all the time. He loves music. He loves musicians. He's just a joy to make music with. He's a joy to be a buddy with. So, Steve, welcome to Gig Gab. It is an honor and a pleasure to be here, gentlemen. And I don't know how the heck I'm going to live up to all of that. (laughs) (laughs) There's only one way to go from there. That's right. That's right. And that's that's circling the drain. (laughs) So Steve is an incredibly experienced performer, and um, he has a lot of really interesting thoughts on structuring shows, on you know ways, and it's not just. I mean, he I see him do this with his solo acting with us as a trio, and then I've seen him do it with bands. So Steve has come on today with a lot of thoughts about how to make your act very audience client, which can be the same thing or different things, accessible and friendly. So. Steve, I think I'll toss it to you and you can just kind of set this up and then we're going to start probing with you. Sure. Uh, And in fact, I chose my words carefully in terms of the topic. And you notice the one word that's not in there and that's musician friendly. And the the thing that I've learned over the uh, 65 million years that I've been doing this is that the, the opinion that matters the least in terms of 
whether I'm going to be a success or not is my own. Um, and I find if I had a nickel for every time a musician has said, well, shoot, I'm better than so-and-so fill in the blank. I should be getting all these gigs. And what they don't realize is while there certainly is a threshold in in terms of musical competency that you have to reach in order to be successful, how good you are ultimately is the least determining factor as far as your success as a, as a, as a performer. Yeah. And so what it really gets down to is understanding what drives your client, understanding what drives your audience. And I think Paul is spot on. That can be the same thing. It can also be different things. Sometimes the audience is a big determining factor. Sometimes the audience is far less of a determining factor. And part of what you have to do is decide what drives the particular venue in which you're playing in terms of what is always knowing what success is as a club, as a, as a veteran of club bands, much like Paul is what drives success in clubs is people ringing the cash register. And, you know, you could, you could, and, and it's funny because even to the exclusion, a lot of times of how many bodies you have in the room, if you have a bunch of bodies in the room and everybody's drinking water, that probably isn't going to drive you to be a successful club act. Ultimately, what you have to do in most club environments that I've been in is drive those cash registers to rent. Right. You got to sell. Right. You got to sell alcohol or food or both. Exactly or both. Exactly. Yeah. But Steve, I'm gonna I'm gonna pause you for a second. I'm gonna probe you for just a second because I also know you to be an incredible music purist. I mean, you are a musician's musician. So talk for a little bit about how you balance these two things. You say the least important person impresses the musician or other musicians or yourself, but you do this. We don't, we don't want to give the message out there that mediocre music is acceptable just as long as you, as you're oh, in no, the cash and, register. Right. No. And I, and I think that's a valid point, Paul. Um, I think again, that, that you have, you have to be, willing to dedicate time and energy to your craft. And I think, you you know, you brought up repertoire, which of course is one of my favorite topics. And to me, I always looked at repertoire like a dartboard and you will find that most bands will go to the bullseye and try to do everything inside the bullseye. And in reality, you really have the whole dartboard to choose from. And this is part of another thing that I think that helps you to, um, differentiate yourself when a, when a, when a possible uh, client is looking to hire you is what makes you different from every other act out there. And there are a lot of ways, and Paul knows this full well, that you can differentiate yourself. Certainly the material is one. In other words, you don't have to do Mustang Sally. There are a zillion other really cool R and B songs of the same ilk that if you play them, people will immediately recognize them. I used to call them aha songs. Give me a couple. And, mm, um, I like that term. That, yeah, aha songs. So that you play it and somebody says, aha, I know that we, one. And we're not just yeah. talking about take on me. If there's no, a lot of no, aha songs. songs. <laughs> no, we're not. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a great one that, we, that, the, that my cover band, the Groove Kings, used to do. It's a great song by the Sanford Townsend band called Smoke from a Distant Fire. Oh, yeah. You know, and the minute you, I could say that title and say the name of the band, and if I had 10 people in the room, maybe one or two people would know what it is. But if I played the first four notes of it, they would know it immediately. Yep. And Paul, to your point about how do you now keep the band interested, 
Again, you start to look at these things and see how vast they're. Everybody does, I heard it through the grapevine. So what did we as the Groove Kings do to differentiate ourselves? We decided to go back and do Gladys Knight's version of it. Oh, that's a great version of that too. Yeah. Yeah, and nobody does it. So now we take the same song that everybody's heard. We do it in a way that's that's different but recognizable. And all of a sudden now you have a distinction. And I think that's really important when, you know, in, in what we all realize is a competitive landscape. And that's why, and Paul, I think you'll attest to this. I've never felt competitive about what I do because I believe that what I do, whether I'm a solo artist or a part of a band is going to be unique. And if people want me, they're going to hire me because of what's unique and distinct about what I do. Well, to be fair, they're probably also hiring you because you can do it. Like you said, there's a minimum competency level. And, and, and uh, agreed. And, and also an entertainment level, right? I mean, you're, mm-hmm. you're not just a jukebox on stage. You're a human and you're going to interact with these people. And that's, oh, that's important, I think. Heck yeah. And, I, and I'll tell you, and you, you, the entertainment piece is another one that I think is really important. And I'll tell you, the, the guy I always use as an example is Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson got more laughs out of flubbing. And and recovering and the the humor that was created as a result of that, because he realized that his job was not to be a great comedian or to be a great talk show host. His job was to be a great entertainer and to get his audience to react so that basically if I can fall on my face and screw up songs left and right and get my audience to respond and like what I'm doing, then I've been a success. I don't have to necessarily be the greatest musician in the world. And I want to get to something that you guys talked about on gig gab 36 that I really, really latched into. And Dave, I think it was your comment that you said degree of difficulty doesn't matter. Right. I'm going to challenge that to a point. Sure. Degree of difficulty matters. If you're doing something that again is, is in that dartboard somewhere, but allows you to be distinctive from everybody else that's out there. There are songs in my repertoire that are very recognizable, very, you know, have high entertainment value. And what the difficulty allows me to do is distinguish myself from other people that are doing the same thing that I'm doing. That make, yeah, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. If, if if other bands can't pull that tune off, then suddenly you're the one that can do it. And, right. and that and that that distinguishes you. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I'll give so that. Steve does. Um, you know, we all do some interesting acoustic covers. But Steve kind of takes this solo acoustic thing. I mean, he'll do How Much I Feel by Ambrosia, which is which is a really it's a challenging song on many levels. It's challenging to play an acoustic arrangement of it where the acoustic guitar rings and, you know, sustains you as a, as a rhythm instrument, because they're, you know, the chords are up the neck and they're fretted chords. And, you know, it's really a challenge to, to play it cleanly enough. Cause you, and you can't get away with ambrosia without playing it clean. And then it's a challenging vocal range to play as well. That's probably one of the first songs that comes to mind when, that I've seen you do that, that you do it, and anyone who knows the song or know or, or watches you play it, no, this is not eating at the kids' table, right? This is this is eating at the grown-ups' table. But you make it look very easy. So the degree of difficulty that you're selling, um, certainly musicians notice it, but you're you're very good at it, and so it is transparent the difficulty. Well, and I think that's but but I think you make a really really good point about the transparency. I was playing a gig. 
in downtown Campbell a few, a few days ago. And I happened to play how much I feel at the end of my show. And there was a young lady that was walking down the street and she stopped and she waited and listened to me play it. And then she, when I, it was one of the last songs I played. So she stayed till I was done. When I got off stage, she came up to me and she said, thank you. I love that song and nobody plays it. Not, oh, wow. That was really hard and nobody plays it. But I love that song, but nobody plays it. Well, there's a reason nobody plays it. Yeah, but she doesn't need to know the reason, right? Exactly. The fact that you do it makes you different because no one else does it. The, the, The reason why no one else does it is almost irrelevant, unless the reason no one else does it is that everybody hates the song and it's not recognizable. But but that comes back to choosing the right tunes. Yeah. And and to me again, I think it's the differentiating the differentiation between choosing a tune because it's a great tune and because maybe it's it's more challenging. And I and I don't know that it's necessarily so much about capability as it is about the the desire to want to take the time to do it in a lot of cases. But I mean, it's the differentiation between that and doing Mustang Sally better than Band B does. Nobody's going to care. No. No, no one will leave a club saying that band plays Mustang Sally better than another, but they, but they'll like it just the same. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. It's, it's right, about us, the song and not the a couple different. more aha songs. I do question by the Moody blues. Mm. Again, it's one of those songs that you launch into it and everybody, you know, I'm going to say, I'm going to do a moody, a moody blues song. And everybody's of course, expecting nights in white satin, which is usually the one that everybody does, at least in the acoustic format, because it's a nice, easy strumming song. And I launch into question. And in the th- first three or four strums, people go, God, great song. And so you're, on a, you're on a quest for, for those magic songs that nobody is doing. And that's where you kind of make your unique mark. Well, that's one of the ways I do it. The other way is I think each of us has a set of gifts and are one of the things we can do as musicians to distinguish ourselves is to take advantage of our gifts. My gift is I can usually hear a song. And as long as I can get the lyrics in front of me, I can probably do it. And I've leveraged that into being able to not take requests from a list, but almost to take any request. And certainly from a band standpoint. And yet Paul's seen me do it. And all basically somebody will call a song out. The other night, somebody asked for um, Rock Me Gently by Andy Kim. I don't even know if you remember the song. Rock me gently, rock me slowly. Oh, yeah. Don't you know? You see, there you go. There's your aha moment right there, Dave. You see it? Yep. And and I don't do all the requests, but if somebody comes up with something where I know based on the knowledge of my audience, and this is what's part of what's important, again, about being client friendly, being audience friendly, is know your audience well enough to know that if, if somebody requests a song, don't play it simply because they requested it. That can help you because again, now you draw that person in to your, to your, to your performance. And that's always a positive, but I played it and everybody turned around because I knew that that was a song they would recognize the minute I started singing it. And another lesson in there is when doing requests, you actually get an incredible amount of goodwill just for trying. I mean, if you don't hack it terribly or, 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 if you if you half butt it and and 
you don't take the effort seriously, then you're not serving the request or the original song in any way. But if you give it a good all American try, you get a lot of you get a lot of bonus points and you get a lot of goodwill both from the requester and it's actually quite entertaining for the rest of the audience. So I think I, there's a I, lesson in there. If if you can, um, you know, you can be a little bit more intrepid than you might think when doing requests. I, I have I have a thought about this because the one of the bands I play in, we have a guitar player that that has a talent similar to yours where if he's heard the song once, he he basically knows enough of the chord structure, even if it might not be the right chords, to honor a request, right? In in that vein of, yep, we, we're gonna we're gonna give this our best try. My concern with and it's always fun, and I actually like playing those gigs because it challenges me, right? I've got to I've got to fit in and and make that work, and 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 that part's great. But there's always something in the back of my mind that says everybody in the room knows what's going on right here. You know, this is a request. We're honoring it. They know that maybe we don't uh, maybe we don't have, uh, you know, all of the, the pieces together. But we're going to we're going to try this because somebody asked, what about the guy that walks into the room halfway through that, too? And I, I always I always worry about that. In what way? I, I, I'm curious. It's, it's an interesting question. Well, it, if we're if we're not performing it to the level that we would say a song that we had rehearsed and, and a song that we knew. Uh, mm-hmm. I always worry, like, you know, we're hacking through this. It's part of the fun. It's that Johnny Carson moment, right? Y- you know, but it, it's not great. And what, what, what is that guy that just walked in the room think? Because he doesn't know what's going on yet. And he thinks it's amateur hour when he walks in. Well, I think, yeah, I, th- and, I and I think to Dave's point, there has to be a certain quality level that you're able to do to do that. And I think certainly, obviously, as a solo artist, pulling off the request thing is much easier for me than it would be in a band where I have to have people follow me. But I've done it in the band format too, where, Mm -hmm. where I've got people that can pick up harmonies, they can pick up parts, you know, and, and it's, you have to have it where the quality, I think the quality level is more discernible by us as performers than it is by an audience. That's not to say that you can go, you know, from a hundred percent and play something at 10%. But it's the, if it's the difference between 80% and, and 65%, most people aren't going to be able to tell. That's, you know what? You're right. It, it's true. Yeah. And, and of course we're as musicians, we're always our own worst critics uh, in, in terms of that kind of stuff. Yeah. As long as again, and I want to get back to this, to the center of the topic here, as long as you don't lose sight of what it is you're trying to do. And that is to please your client and please your audience. Yeah. That's I'm thinking about when, when Dave and I were first starting the Mackerel band, we, you and Dave actually have a very similar sensibility and appreciation for, for great, great crafted pop songs. Dave brought in, I'm going to, I'm going to give three that maybe they can be in some form in this aha, in this aha list. So, um, Brandy, you're a fine girl. I knew you were going to bring that one up. Somebody requested that actually last night when I played. <laughs> yeah. That's got a lot um, of weird chords in it. I'm sorry to, to have done that to you, Paul. <laughs> but it was cool. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a great melody and, you know, it makes people smile. Yeah. Um, build me up, Buttercup. Yeah. That mm-hmm. was you. You picked that one, not me. <laughs> you have a very good memory. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to think. There was one other one of those kind of like early 70s, like solid gold pop. Did we do Band of Gold? I feel like okay, we okay, I'm, we might I'm show my music geekdom. Brandy is looking glass. That's correct. Um, uh, 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 Man of gold is free to pain. Right. Yep. And what was the third one you mentioned? Oh, build me a buttercup was the foundations. That's correct. Right. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the, all those tunes are smile. I've I've played Build Me Up Buttercup in a couple of bands. That's it's a it's one of those tunes that nobody thinks they're gonna hear when they go out to a club. Um instantly fills the dance floor if it's not already full, but is is not easy to play. It, no, it's, it's got it's you know very subtle in its arrangement. And it's and it's got that that I mean it's a shuffly kind of thing all the way through it, but it's gotta it's be not a bar band song. It, yeah, yeah, you've got to be good. But again, but it's I, it's one of those that that allows you to differentiate yourself if you can play. And it I off. think too, you know, yeah, I, that's a great song because of of the fact that it was in a movie that everybody saw. Right. You know, and I think there are a lot of songs that when you start to think about them that maybe weren't popular at the time, but if they showed up in a movie that everybody saw, I mean, look at what happened to Unchained Melody, which I get, I used to do before Ghost came out, never got asked for it. And then all of a sudden Ghost came out and I couldn't get away from it. Yeah, Steve, I'd actually, uh, in honor of Wayne's World, I'd like you to start doing a single version of Bohemian Rhapsody. That'd be pretty cool. It is something that has crossed my mind. I just haven't come up with an arrangement that works. Yeah. Solo, I, I solo harmonies on that would be uh, would be interesting. Yeah. But no, you have to. You see, that's the thing is you have to vacate the harmony. And now what you have to do is try to get the essence of the song. One of the songs that I did that with was I do a solo acoustic version of two out of three ain't bad which is a, which is a song by meatloaf. Yeah. Probably his most popular song, but it had choruses and five guitars and, and, and strings and everything else. How do you distill that down to the essence of the song? And that was the challenge for me. Well, you did and it with Judy Blue Eyes too. Yeah. We hacked our way so- through sweet Blue, Judy Blue Eyes at an acoustic gig I did two weeks ago. Uh, that, you know, that kind of thing is hard to pull off without a rehearsal. Yeah. Yeah. We had we had moments of it that were good and moments of it that were absolutely not good. Uh, Well, Acoustic Madness has done it on a number of occasions and we haven't rehearsed it yet. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. All right. I'm going to push us back towards the original uh, concept here. So so let's let's talk about your experience with with Night Cry. So, you, you know, this is an award winning blues band. How many how many CDs did you guys make? We did three. And you know this is a band that's revered in this area. You know, really a legendary. There's a pretty good blues scene here in the South Bay, in Northern California, and, and that was a legendary band. Um, how did you apply this, uh, making your event venue fan well, client great, friendly? That's a great question. We were one of the very few originals bands that right. was actually out playing four hour club gigs. So what we had to do was to look. Obviously, we, we, we didn't have enough original material to fill four hours doing purely original. So we we brought in covers that were more of the aha tune variety. We weren't doing Mustang Stally. The, the, we did we would do uh, Don't Let the Green Grass Fool You instead, which is which is another Wilson Pickett song. We didn't you know, we would do Show Me by Joe Tex. We would do. Um, but these were all things that if you juxtaposed them next to Night Cry's original material fit in almost tongue and groove with the sound that our that our material had. So we were doing enough that people recognized it. And then over a period of time, as our own songs became popular in the club scene, we were able to get gigs based on our original material. And that was the way it sort of evolved. But it but it but we never lost sight the whole time of the fact that we needed to to bring an audience, please an audience and make those cash registers ring, even if we were doing original material. And it didn't matter how good our material was. It was basically, are we is it stuff that's friendly to our audience, which 
then by extension is friendly to the venue. So even in your original situations, you, you, you know, like the, my experience is many original artists are like, well, this is the deal. I'm going to go out there and I've written this thing. It's part of me. It's, a, it's my art. And if there's an audience for it, great, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to shoehorn my art in order to make it X, Y, or Z. Are you saying that that's a mistake to take that approach even I, as an original band? I think it absolutely is. I mean, again, if you, if you want the ultimate thing that you want, even as an originals band is you want people to hear your material has no, it has you know, being true to your muse. Yes, certainly. I mean, I wrote a song. I don't have club owners and audiences trying to get me to change my arrangement, but if I'm going to go into a club, I still have to be club friendly. We used to, the title track to our, um, Second CD was called Too Cool to Be Blue. And the beat and the feel of it was almost identical to, to how Mustang Sally was. In fact, we used to get a lot of comparisons to it because that was my I would I would try to channel Wilson Pickett when I sang it. But again, you get that vibe going and it's kind of the same rule, right? You get people so, sort of ahaing to the feel, which is a little more subtle and a little harder to do, but still applicable. Yeah. You're still pleasing your audience, right? There's a, there's a band, um, I think they're out of Tennessee right now, called Roxy Roca, that's that's writing originals that sound just like soul tunes that you already know. It's that same kind mm -hmm. of thing. And they're doing really, really well. Yeah. 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 We got, we got lumped, you know, to call us a blues band was really a misnomer. We were really a throwback. We were a Memphis R and B band. Okay. Uh, All right. That happened to do more bluesy stuff. We did some straight ahead blues tunes too. Sure. But most of what we did was, you know, two horns, guitar, bass, drums, keys. I mean, that's the yeah. standard stacks Atlantic soul uh, instrumentation. That's right. Yeah. Had, actually, I'm hearing this for the first time. Was that generally agreed upon in the band? Because didn't Renee consider himself a blues guitarist? Very much so. And I think what happened is certainly when he teamed up with our keyboard player, Rich Palmer, and then ultimately me, the colors kind of started to change. Yeah. There certainly was a blues. We were bluesier than your average Atlantic Solar Watts Stacks band. But in in its essence if you listen to the beat if you listen to the fact that it wasn't one four five in fact there was a reviewer for the merc who just said it was nice to hear blues that had you know six chord or seven chord in it you know with, with that was a little different that added another color another flavor and you know what i'm 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 okay with that i'm all i'm totally okay with that we didn't consider it blues necessarily we just considered it night crime music that was all we ever cared about interesting yeah. Why not? I know that. Right. I mean, that's yeah. You just play your tunes. But again, never losing sight of who we were there for and what our mission was. And this is the thing. It, you know, we could we could win every blue original blues band competition in the on the universe in the universe. But at the end of the day, if we weren't applicable to this dance club we were playing in and doing what they needed from us, which had very little to do with how great a blues band we were, then we were never going to succeed there. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So it, it, the way Paul kind of set you up and, and, and uh, of course put you on this pedestal when, uh, when you joined, which I, which I thought was fantastic. <laughs> um, it, 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 
sort of what what I got out of some of that was that in addition to uh, being a, a musician and understanding your crowd, you're also somewhat of a scene creator, right? I mean, especially with this acoustic thing that you're you're doing now and that you started doing a few years ago. But it also sounds like with this blues band, I mean, you it and and perhaps that's an extension of of just knowing what audiences want and then going and and creating sort of the foundation for that. And, and then perhaps other musicians can, can take advantage of that. Would you, would you say that's accurate? I think that's part of it, but for me, music has always been communal. It's, it's communal in terms of playing with other musicians, every band I've ever been in, we have always welcomed sit-ins again, as long as they don't interfere with our ability to serve our client and serve our audience. We loved having other people play with us. Um, we also uh, welcomed audience participation. That's why the request thing, when we, Acoustic Madness, when Paul and Mary Ellen and I sat down and first talked about the vibe we wanted to create, I said, you know, I'd love it if it, we were, if it was like we were all sitting in somebody's living room. And thankfully, at least at one of our venues, and I think actually two of them, if you really think about it, that's kind of the vibe we created where the audience is just as important to our show as we are. And gosh, I mean, that to me is the pinnacle of the communal nature of music, you know, and I think, too, that. You know, I, you know, I think it's, 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 it's a competitive landscape out there with what we do, but I don't, I, I choose to revel in the communal piece of what we do to be friendly to other musicians. We were involved in a, and Paul may have talked about it in a, in a prior episode. We were both involved in different years in a uh, contest on a radio station here called Mm -hmm. last band standing. And, um, when we got to the semifinals and were fortunate enough to move on, I posted the link to the people's, to the other band's website on our website. And my, my, one of my fellow bandmates called me up and said, what in the heck are you doing? (laughs) And what you start to realize when you're, you know, you talked about scene creation and I think part of what, everybody wins, then we all win individually. And I think that's the thing that's lost on a lot of people. The only way that we as individuals have places to play is if we as a group of acts establish a scene and interest venues in having music. And I think that's a part of our responsibility as artists, as working musicians is to do that. I also take very seriously my responsibility to young up and coming musicians. I want to leave a place where people who are, you know, just starting out that when I move on or I get too old to play, whenever the heck that happens. Um, uh, <laughs> what, what is that have, number? <laughs> Wait, don't tell I, me. I don't, don't tell me. <laughs> for me, I'm not sure it exists. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, that they have a place to play too. I think that's really important. I mean, I, w- I have benefited from the generosity, from the skill of the people that preceded me. I want to leave that kind of legacy for the people that come behind me when I'm done. Well, I think that's a really pause. We should pause right there and just reflect on that a little bit, because if you think about it uh, on the surface, a scene feels like a competitive sport. Like there's X amount of gigs. And if I don't get it, someone else is going to get it. And no God, I'll never work again. But what I've found, certainly playing with Steve and, and, and a lot of the really great musicians in our area, they do create that vibe that is like 
there's enough gigs. And if everybody at all of the gigs is playing well, more people will go out for live music and then there'll be more gigs. And we're actually, I got to say, we're seeing that with acoustic music that's happened around here. I mean, you know, at first it was one or two venues and now, you know, there's probably 10 or 15 venues now. And, and the thing is people are enjoying coming out and hearing quality music. You know, the, the rising tide lifts all boats is, is actually a fact. And it, I, I think it's probably counterintuitive to a lot of musicians who play their scene as a competitive sport, as opposed to a complimentary um, supportive uh, sport. Um, I, it, it has taken me a long time to get to that place. I certainly, and I'm not, I am nowhere near as evolved as what Steve just shared. I got to say, there's still times where, you know, I know the four bands that are up for a certain gig that I really want. And, you know, Steve's a little bit more ethereal about, well, they're going to make a decision based upon one very specific thing that they want that I might not have. I don't know if I'm, I, no, I do know I'm not all the way there yet, but I do have to say that a lesson learned from the experienced musicians here that the generosity, I mean, I think about Robert Berry in our area, this guy has accomplished so many things, right. And, and, and Mary Ellen and, and a lot of the great, you know, Doug Burns, the, the really, really, Oh, come on. And the really, really cool musicians in this area. It is, it is unconditionally supportive that they want other people to do well because good music will create more work for everybody. And it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive until you get there and experience it. And then it certainly seems, at least from what I'm experiencing, it certainly seems like there, there's a truism there that you have to have a little faith in, but it'll work out for everybody. So Steve brought us back to gig gap 32, Paul, I'm going to bring us all the way back to gig gap four, where you asked the question, uh, what does it mean when somebody says support live music? And, mm. and the conversation that we had was about the message to fans, right? If you don't support live music, none of this happens. Perhaps that message is simply misdirected. It's not necessarily a, a bad call to action, but really it needs to be turned around and reflected on the musicians. And, and that's kind of what we're talking about here. We Absolutely. all have to support live music. And that means creating or, or, you know, allowing doing whatever we can for our scene, not just for our own projects, but for everyone's projects to succeed, because that's where it happens. That's such a great point, Dave. And, and that is certainly a part of it. We have we not only have a responsibility to ourselves, to our audience, to our clients, we have a responsibility to each other. And that's a responsibility that I take very, very seriously. If I'm given an opportunity to help out a fellow musician by maybe coming in and playing a couple of tunes with them, maybe, you know, giving them a little bit of advice on how to, how to approach a particular venue. I am more than willing to do that because I truly believe, as Paul, I think, articulated really well, that ultimately comes back and floats all the boats. It, it truly does. That's been my experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, yeah, and you it, know, we all I, I, mean, I mean, none of us got to where we are as players without learning from other people. And sometimes it's learning by osmosis. But other times it's learning because someone is sitting there teaching you something or giving you the opportunity to play with them when they could have somebody that's more skilled than you. Right. And and that, you know, it's important to leave that door open. You know, it, it's a two way street. Right. Well, case in point, I, I had a I had a musician approach me. Um, Paul put together a really, really nice thing. Um 
last week where we gathered all of our local musicians together to just hang out for a couple of hours. And it was a great event, but I had a fellow musician come up to me and express his almost adoration of the fact that I played sweet Judy blue eyes. Okay. And I said, I would be happy to sit down and teach you that song. And to me, that's, that's part of what we do to pass along what it is we're doing to other people to create a better scene for all of us. I'm happy to share. And I think if we all got in that, you know, as opposed to being clandestine, which is kind of the knee jerk reaction to be more generous with our time, with our skill, with our advice, that we really do create a better environment for all of us. Take it forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, it, and it's not like you get to a point where all you're doing is paying it forward. I mean, it's it's con- for me anyway, it's constantly, you know, changing. I'll find myself in situations where I'm one of the more experienced players on a gig or in a, in whatever the, the scenario is. And then it's just as easy for me to find myself in a situation where it's like, whoa, I'm the guy learning today. OK, let's go. You know, and I I, I think both are fantastic. I You know, case in point, Dave, I I. Um, uh, uh, Paul mentioned a, a gentleman by the name of Robert Berry who spent time with Keith, Keith Emerson and Carl Palmer. Yeah, we talked, we talked a lot about Robert Berry last week. Robert yeah. Robertson, amazing guy. I got a call from him with, with a gig opportunity to go play with two or three guys. I won't mention names because I don't think it's fair to them to sort of drag them in, uh, expose them like that, but to basically play with people who were famous for being in bands that, Everybody knows. And you want to talk about feeling like you have to bring your A game, but also truly feeling blessed that I was given the opportunity to go in and get to the next level. It's it's a wonderful thing that happens, I think, if you start to do this as a part of who you are as an as an artist. Yeah, it's true. And and you walk in and you got to serve the situation too, right? In in addition to being blessed, and in addition to being you know exposed to these people from whom you can learn, you've also, like you said, you've got to bring your A game. You were hired for you weren't hired so that you could learn, right? You, you that that's a that's a byproduct of it, and that's awesome. But you well, got to you got to play. Yeah, and 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 I think bringing your A game is it, that's a that's a great point, Dave. Because I I've always told the people that I've been in bands with. You play the best you can play, whether there's a thousand people out there or whether there's one, because that one person may be the guy that's going to get you that gig that breaks you. And you never know. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Talked about that many times. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. And also, you know, you're right. I mean, there's there's the practical reason of always bringing your A game. And and if. It, at, at the very least, you need it's good to have that as a safety net in your own head, kind of in the hierarchy of of the decision tree. But hopefully higher up than that is you bring your A game for yourself. Well, that's true. And also, I think you bring your A great your A game for your art. And again, I, you know, I talked about responsibility and the responsibility I feel I have as an artist. I feel that I have as much obligation to entertain that one guy that's sitting by himself as I do entertaining a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I've, you know, that that's part of what I'm there to do. And to not do that to me is somewhat shirking my responsibility as an artist. That's right. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, yeah, we do this because we love it and, and it's a passion that we pursue. So it, you know, sometimes in the middle of Mustang Sally, it, it's possible. I don't want to say it's easy to forget that, but it's possible to forget that. But mm-hmm. there's never, it's never, you never, it's never far away and it shouldn't. Uh, be well, I'll, I'll share this. We, in our gig last Saturday night, we had this nice woman who came out. She was celebrating her birthday. She brought her boyfriend and a couple of close friends um, to our show. And, uh, and she was having a good time and we played one of those songs, you know, I don't remember, it, was, it wasn't Mustang Sally, but it was a really simple song. The woman was almost in tears because of the, the, just the joy she was having, expressing herself, celebrating with her people she loved, listening to music that she loved. And I got to tell you, if, if you want to be humbled and reminded why you do what you do, you know, we said this many times. There's no evil in Mustang Sally. I don't care what anybody says. I hate the memes that go around Facebook. You know, I, if, if, if you, if you make someone cry because you're making them so happy, you're doing it right. Well, and you know, to, to kind of refute my own point, I don't think I've ever lost sight of the importance of playing a tune properly in the, especially in the middle of Mustang Sally, because the groove for that song needs to be so slippery and it, you got to be steady. Greasy. It's got to be greasy, but but it's got to be perfectly greasy. And I, I mean, I actually love playing that tune because of that. It, you know, you just got to get it that just that right amount of slip in there. Ah, oh, well, as, as a vocalist, I mean, yeah. I, I, I sing that song from the bottom of my heels every yes. time I do it. It doesn't matter. I'm going to put everything I have into it. If I'm going to play it, I'm going to play it right or I'm not going to play it at all. The same is true of Freebird. You know, I, I have uh, it, it, it's always requested, especially at, you know, high energy rock gigs. And every now and then we'll play it. And when we play it, I you know, I like that from the bottom of your heels, man. That's where it comes from. And we play the whole thing and play as best we can. And it's always a blast. We don't play mm-hmm. it every gig, but absolutely. Yeah. I've gotten a request as a solo guitarist to do it. And I've done it. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Absolutely. Hey man, you, Absolutely. you write a song that means that much to that many people. And then and then, you know, then you can decide whether you're not going to do something right that's until right. you do until you do. You're there to serve the people, which is, I think, what Dave's point is. Excuse me, what Steve's point is. All right, Steve. So we're running a little short on time. So uh, I'll put you on the spot here. How about Steve's top three tips for serving an audience? The first thing is know your audience. If you're going to go into a new venue And there are, especially, you know, most of the venues that hire us already have live music. Go scout the room. Go see what your demographic is. Go see, you know, what people are responding to, at least at the highest level. Take it back to your band or, you know, or your duo or your trio and, and, and discuss it. Say, Hey, look, I went. This is what works. This is, this is, um, you know, this is what I saw. Let's make sure we kind of do this to our show or that to our show to kind of, Make it friendly for the room that we're going in. So that's number one. Number two, check in, check in with your audience, check in with your client, especially when I do my first gig. But I do. I try to do it every gig. I go over to the bar manager or to the um, to the to the to the man to the overall manager if he's there and I say everything going okay. Always check in. 
Yeah. It's a good thing to do. A lot of times, if something's going wrong, they may not say anything till the end of the night. If you go and you ask the question and you ask it early, you can course correct immediately. And I think the same is true of your audience. If you've got people talking, go talk to your audience. Find out what's working for them. Find out what they want to hear. Take the time between. Just because you're on a break, it doesn't mean you're off. You're still working. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How many times have we said that here, Paul? It's true. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And the Probably third the best thing. Advice. Yeah. And the third thing, and, 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 and I want to make this clear, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a taxi with garbage all over it. Okay. When I say spruce up your act, I mean that from an aesthetic point of view, look good. One of the guys I used to play with had a great thing. He said, you should, you should be able to look in a room and tell who's in the band and who isn't. Yep. Love that. Um, and and the same thing with the way you play. Bring your A game every night. Bring your best. So those are my three. That's great. Word, Steve. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining Thanks us, man. This is us. a blast. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a great time. Thanks for having me. Folks, right, if man. you if you have any uh, any questions you want to ask Steve, you can send them to us here at feedback at giggabpodcast.com or you can visit our Facebook page at giggabpodcast. We would love to hear from you. And uh, and thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for joining us, Steve. As always, Paul, thank you. It's a blast. Thanks, Dave. We'll talk next week. Take it easy.